All right, we got we got we got to crank up the volume in the house a little bit today. Because I, I I got a message I'm passionate about, and and I I need some I need some encouragement up here. Okay. Give a little hoop and a holler if you're from Kentucky. All right. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, well, I want to start off with what I believe is a vision from the Lord for this house that I, I want us to, to hone in on, and this will kind of be part of the theme of what God is doing in the house. When I was praying into the year 2023 and asking God, what are you doing? What do you want to prepare us for? The vision that I saw, you guys are visual. We got filmmakers, we got actors, we got screenwriters. If you live in Los Angeles, it's just in the environment anyway, so tap right in with me, okay? So the vision that I saw from the Lord was that it was this scene of a field of harvest that was ready. Now, harvest, if you're not familiar, is a, a symbol of those that are ready to receive Jesus. The harvest is ready. Now, this, this was a, a scene where the sun had set, the day was ending, it was kind of that purple pink color in the sky and surrounding this enormous field as far as the eye could see were all of these enormous combines now if you're not from the midwest that's okay it's those big tractors that gather the grain so all these combines that were enormous were gathered sporadically all around the field but what i noticed was that they were old and that they were rusty and they were not in operation and they were sitting there. They had been prepared, but somewhere along the way, they had stopped. And what I saw the Lord do, he started to touch each and every combine. And there started becoming a, a red, ferocious glow in the engines. And, and the combine started turning. And as it started moving with the fire of God through its engine, the old oil was burnt up. And the operation of the combine started charging you could feel almost the vibrations of the combines ready to go. And so what I felt was that there's, there's this visual of the combines like a people at war that are getting ready for battle the next day. The combines were ready to collect the harvest and saying, I, I've prepared myself. Maybe along the journey, I've grown tired. I've grown a little rusty. Maybe you feel like you have old oil, but the Lord is here to bring a fresh stirring by his presence in our hearts today. The areas that we've grown disappointed from not seeing the harvest, and maybe some of us have quit, this is the time that he is firing us up as a people, because here comes the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. He will send laborers into the harvest field. And I want the cry of our heart as a church to be, here we are, Lord, send us. Fill us with fresh oil. We need your fresh oil. We don't want to be clunky, religious, tired machines. We want to be firing and ready to go when you say go. And so let the Lord do that amongst the house today. And let that carry out into the theme of 2023. I am passionate about what God's doing in the house. I have too many notes to be honest with you. I want to fly through them and you guys soak it all up, okay? We are kicking off a series called Living for a Greater Mission. 
The problem is that we all get stuck in our own issues. We get placed into boxes of small thinking. We lose track of our purpose and the part that we play in the bigger story. And so the why today, I want us to gain a greater understanding of both an individual and a corporate mission to get our eyes off of ourself and our own purposes, though that's important. But what's more important is the global purpose of the church and what we have to do to play our part in that greater story. God is firing up our engines. He's bringing a fresh passion, a fresh purpose within each and every one of us and with us as an entire body. So I want us to buckle up. I want us to get ready to receive a lot today. Open up your soul, your spirit, your mind to receive all that God has for us this morning. I want you to get your Bibles out, your notebooks out, and let's dive in together. The portion of scripture that we're focusing on this morning marks the third main section in the book of Acts. Acts chapter one through five has a theme of the power of Christian community. Sarah actually spoke on that several weeks ago, the supernatural power of Christian community. And if you've been a part of the house, that's been a major theme within this house, that post COVID, God has been nurturing a rich and powerful community. And so that, that is the theme of Acts 1 through 5. The Holy Spirit poured out and the saints gathering radically together. Then there's a movement in chapters 6 through 10 of the theme of the power of the pure gospel. And as we read about what happens and how they, they preach the good news of Jesus in all of its authority, not watering it down, but fully embracing it, and what the good news does to a company of people who actually live it out. It's the power of the pure gospel. And now here we are today in chapter 11, and there is a major shift that takes place from chapter 11 to the end of the book, and that is the theme of the power of living for a greater mission. Did you know that God absolutely loves when we choose to lay down our thing and follow his thing? How many of us know that when we're stuck in a mindset of just living for ourselves and living to please ourselves, life is going to be horribly empty and unfulfilling? But when we discover and we adopt a lifestyle of radically following Jesus and choosing to serve others, we, we find something that is way more fulfilling than we can put words into. And we discover that it's actually a message that is worth giving our entire lives for. It's a message that we're even worth giving our lives unto the death for. And isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't say that he has the answer of what's worth living for. He tells us that he is what's giving everything for. He is our magnificent obsession. He is our prize. He is the goal. He is our purpose, our everything. It's Jesus himself. And so I'm really looking forward to all that we're going to unpack the the next several weeks, but we're going to start looking at our mission as God's people, both as individuals and as a local church and the church worldwide. And I love it because when we focus in on the mission, it gives us a strengthened purpose. 
a deeper meaning to our lives, and a sharpened focus of where we should be spending ourselves. God is not interested in just getting a bunch of people together to have fun and to have a happy, clappy community. And of course, that's part of it. He loves a little happy, clappy. But that's just a part of it. The deeper purpose isn't just to have a good time together. It's actually incredibly liberating to realize that we are not here for ourselves. This following Jesus thing isn't about, I like the way that Jesus works for me. It really fits my active lifestyle. God is absolutely for you. He loves and cares for you more than we can even comprehend. But the truth of following Jesus at its core, the very thing that is so upside down, is not Jesus for me, it's me for Jesus. And that's a very different thing. You can make him your savior. Yes, I've got my ticket to heaven. I gave my yes to him. He's cleansed me from my sins. But the question is, have you made him your Lord? Me for Jesus. And the more that we get to know him, we can't help but want to give our everything to him. We can't help but want to lay our lives down for him because we've seen just how good he is, just how faithful he is, that it no longer is trying to twist our arm to lay our lives down. We freely and willingly desire to lay our lives down for him. It is an honor and a privilege to live for him. And so let's get into the text today, living for a greater mission. Would you guys stand with me? Let's read this text together. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. We have three slides. This is the ESV, if you're following along on your phones. Acts 11, 19 through 30. You guys ready? Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus." And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. 
So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Awesome. Go ahead and take a seat. You guys are getting good at, at this. Uh, I was going to say sing-along. It's a, it's a bit of a sing-along. Talk along. Ring, read along. All right. Acts eleven nineteen through 30. Let's go ahead and pray together. God, we ask that as we read the word, as we examine it, as we, as we open up our hearts to see all that you have for us and how the early church um, gives us so many signs of how we can adopt that to our lifestyle, would you do this, Holy Spirit? Would you bring that fresh fire that I was talking about? Would you work deeply and knit us together as, as one family, as, as one um, church body that has a similar heartbeat to go hard and fast after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So Acts eleven nineteen. make sure to keep your Bibles open, your notebooks open. At this time in early church history, the church is seeing a mass scattering take place. It's spreading through the whole region of the Mediterranean. And there are four main things that we read in this passage that we really need to grasp if we're going to understand and be about the mission that God has for us as a church. I believe these things are vital for every single church to adopt, but we're going to look about how uh, we can put these into practice and see them as a part of our evergreen culture in a greater way. So let's explore these four markers of a church with a mission. And let's really get this nailed down tightly into our church environment. And so that's what I'm preaching on, markers of a church with mission. What, the first marker of a church with mission, number one, they get the message right. This is verse 19 and 20. If we are a church with a good, encouraging, speaking beautiful facility, um, really friendly staff, great community. Um, the worship just is really beautiful and touching. We can have all of these great and good things going for us, but if the message isn't right, it doesn't matter about how right it feels. And so let's look a little bit further into this. Notice the message that is evident here in the early church. It says, all these believers of Jesus were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. I'm not going to go deep into this, but a couple chapters back in chapter 7, we read about Stephen, who was a faithful man of God and was actually stoned for his faith. And while he was being persecuted, his face shone with the glory of God. And there was an awe and a majesty that was present as he was being martyred for the name of Jesus. And so because of this persecution that was taking place, there was a scattering of the believers throughout the land. You might be asking, why were they scattering? Wouldn't it have been more holy to just stay put in your home? Maybe have some 24-hour prayer meetings locked away. I know they're after us, but let's just lock away and we're gonna give our yes for Jesus no matter what. Aren't you supposed to stand up for Jesus even to the death? 
Well, if, you ca- if you're caught, you are. <laughs> if you're caught, you, give your, you say, yes, I believe in Jesus. But isn't it cowardly to run? You know, Jesus actually addresses this in Matthew 10, 23. He says, if they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. And we read of Paul escaping from a building by believers, lowering him in a big basket so that he can escape. We see people getting out of prison and fleeing. And even in the chaos of persecution, God chose to use what the enemy meant for evil to turn it for good. And he scattered his followers throughout the land because these were living messengers of the good news. The wildfire was starting throughout the land. The message of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And this is all part of the greater story of the gospel in motion to the ends of the earth. Take a look at some of the locations that they fled to that we read about here. Phoenicia, that's modern-day Lebanon. Cyprus, that's an island about 50 miles from Turkey. And the text also mentions Antioch. Now, Antioch was a major metropolitan center at the time. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. They had over 500,000 people, which was a lot at the time. They had their own theater. They had a palace. They even had their own Olympic Games. And this is actually where the author of Acts, who is Luke, came from. That's his hometown. And that's the place that he came to faith in Jesus. So, so why are we highlighting this trendy city? What's, what's the point of it? Well, if you have the message of life and you're about to bring it to this thriving metropolis, what's your game plan? You know, you maybe only have lived in Jerusalem as a believer, been around a bunch of Jews, but now you're going to this foreign land of Antioch. How are you going to change your message to appeal to these people? You're going to a totally foreign, godless, pagan, pluralistic culture. How are you going to share the good news to people there? Are they going to start off with some soft-hearted, heartfelt approach? A little, little pep talk for the peoples? Hey, guys, I'm Tommy. I know you haven't seen me before. I hail from Jerusalem, and uh, I just wanted to take a moment to share my heart with you. And I'm going to make sure to smile a lot. And make sure this isn't, this isn't too hard for you to hear. I'm just going to give you a little, a little, little dessert of the gospel this morning. A little good news to brighten your day. How are they going to unpack this thing? Well, they're going to go there full of the Holy Spirit, filled with boldness to proclaim the truth of the gospel unashamed. They're going to preach the word. Why can they be so confident of this? I mean, if it offends people, what if it gets worse? They're trying to preach the message, but if they just go too strong, too fast, maybe people will be like, okay, you guys are, this isn't for me. Anyone can relate to that? And so the text says that they went out speaking the word. They were preaching the message. Hey, everyone, you probably think that this is the way that you were taught, you were taught this way and that way, but let me tell you the true way. I think we can get so nervous when we're gonna, that we're gonna offend people and turn them off to the gospel about how we, how we present it. But the truth is, the truth is that people are hungry for truth. 
They're hungry for God's word. They want a message to live by. They want something solid and unchanging to cling to that actually guides them. And what we see in the text is that they had to get the message right. There are a few main reasons that people are actually starving for God's word. Why are we so hungry for God's word? Number one, because it's soul food. It's not chicken and dumplings like you might think. That's a different kind of soul food. God's word is food for your soul. Scripture says his word is milk. If you know me, I'm a dairy boy. I love a good glass of milk. I had to slow it down because I saw how many calories were in that milk. God's word is milk. Vegan people, his word is milk. This is also for your vegans. Scripture is called meat. Following Jesus is not a vegan diet. In the spiritual. Just needed to ruffle some feathers. Scripture, set, scripture is called bread. I'm offending a lot of people in LA right now. Really narrowing it down. Scripture is broccoli. Scripture is asparagus. Yeah. <laughs> and just as our bodies need food for nourishment and strength in all of life, our souls are craving the Word of God. We actually are. Whether it's covered with a bunch of topsoil, your soul is craving the nourishment of the Word of God to bring that same substance into our being. Not only that, food is for our spirit. Every real follower of Jesus has the Spirit of God living inside of them, and the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. He's drawing us into deeper and deeper places. The Word is food for our spirit. And how, how many can relate to this? When you're, when you're actually spending time in, in the Word of, of God, if you can relate to this, I'm sure that, that you can. If you're actually intending, intentionally spending time in the Word of God, isn't it incredible how as you invest that time, there is a fulfillment and a nourishing that takes place over time. And you end up thinking about the passages that you were reading that week. They come to mind. They come about in conversation. They actually apply to your circumstances. And God's just in it all. He wants to bring that nourishment and the way that it comes about into our lives. But how many can also relate to this? When you let some days go by, you let some weeks go by where you're not engaging with the word of God, you kind of neglect it for a season. Isn't it also true that as we spend time away from the word of God, our spirits are actually grieved? You feel shallow, you feel distant, your spirit is aching for the food of the word. And the Holy Spirit is longing to continue to minister through the word directly in and through you. That's what he's wanting to do. 
So why am I so hungry for the word of God? It is soul food, it's spirit food, and it's satisfying food. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, your words were found unto me and I did eat them. And they became in me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. The word of God, as we consume them, becomes the joy and rejoicing of our very heart. So the first marker of a church with a mission, get the message right. One of the things that has been so frustrating to me the last several years is being inundated with people's opinions, mostly through media. Raise your hand if you're a little tired of hearing of everyone's opinions. You, you turn on social media, and it's another voice that's just blabbing away about their opinions. And I, for one, was exhausted by it. I had to unplug in certain ways. For a little season, I didn't even want to read other books or hear other opinions. I was just like, just give me the straight word of God, because it's, it's all so noisy. Um, but even as preachers, we are not actually supposed to go on and on with our own opinions. I'm tired of hearing the opinions of people in ministry, honestly. And I'm hungry to actually engage with the truth of God's word. The same goes for counselors and therapists. Are are we tired of hearing the opinions of men and, and ready to cling to the truth of God's word? Well, that's exactly what the apostles were doing in Antioch. Are, are we going to flow with, with the world? Or are we actually going to engage with his word and let the Holy Spirit sow truth into our lives and into our families? We have to get the message right. And notice the end of verse 19. It says, they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. Why were they still speaking to all of these Jews when there were so many Gentiles in the region and so many Gentiles being saved? Well, if you remember the stories about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, how he got saved and was, was baptized, how, how Peter ministered to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and his entire family was saved, his whole household. And, and this whole thing was very weird to them with, with this, this sheet and this animal thing that Peter was talking about. God was calling all things clean. This was all very new to them. And so back in Jerusalem, they're hearing these things. And they're like, that's kind of weird. Oh, this, this Ethiopian guy got saved? Huh, that's kind of that's interesting. That, wait, a whole household of Gentiles now? I mean, I know it's mostly about us Jews, but occasionally there will be some minor exceptions. And that's what they were believing at the time. So when they were ministering, they went to the people that they knew. They were still kind of getting the whole picture, this this take the gospel to everyone kind of thing, but it was confusing for them. That is until Antioch. In Antioch, they're in a full-blown revival of Gentile believers coming to Christ, and they're going into full church planting mode. The whole thing was changing as masses of Gentiles were coming to faith. And it was the testimony of Jesus that was igniting hearts. Notice what the text says. Let's put it up here, verse 20. 
But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists and also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Not only were there Jews ministering to about 65,000 Jews who lived there, but there were now believers coming from other regions to the city of Antioch. They were coming from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyrene is modern-day Libya on the, the north coast of Africa. And they were speaking this message to the Hellenists. The Hellenists are the Greeks. And, and what is the message that they are speaking? Well, the emphasis is in verse 20. They were preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to get the whole message right, we have to see a pairing between these two elements, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what we're all about. That's everything. That's what the book of Revelation is unpacking. It's, it's this word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so the first marker of a church with a mission is, number one, get the message right. And number two, get a no-quitting kind of mindset. Get a no-quitting mindset. As disciples of Christ, there is a certain mindset that we have to have. And the early church possessed this mindset. And I want to talk about that in this section. Let's now read verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Notice that there isn't in the text saying, wow, the worship in Antioch was really groundbreaking. It was really special, that worship in Antioch. Really moved me. Oh, that preaching was excellent. I, I, loved, I loved those preachers' illustrations. They really applied to my life. And um, wow, the children's programs, top-notch. They had a slide. Can you believe that? They had a slide in their children's ministry. A slide. The marking factor was that the hand of the Lord was with them. In other words, this was not just our doing. We gave it our best. We preached our hearts out. We worshiped wholeheartedly. But ultimately, God was moving. And he always gets the credit. And the result of his presence being made manifest was that a great number of people turned to him. Notice there's always a turning that takes place. It's not, oh, this is a great spiritual tool for my tool belt. I love what they're preaching. It's so encouraging. I've, I've used it here and there, and, you know, this is, this is really nice. <laughs> no, this is a completely different direction that we're talking about. I was going one way. I thought I knew I was going the right way, but wow, God really changed everything, and now I'm going in a completely new direction. So now we are seeing something remarkable take place in Antioch. This is a shaping for all of church history. They're not just presenting in a gospel, the gospel in a way that a Jewish person would give the gospel from one Jewish person to another by sharing prophecies, by, by showing that Jesus is the Messiah that's come, revealed in the Old Testament. And as beautiful as it is, this audience in Antioch knew nothing about the Old Testament, so they just went for it when they were preaching, straight to the cross. Hey, 
You're a sinner. You have absolutely no hope without Jesus Christ. He's the son of God and he died for you. If you embrace him by faith and make him Lord of your life, you can be forgiven for all of eternity. There was a rapid fire pounding out this message. It's the word of God and the testimony of the Lord Jesus. And now the individuals back in Jerusalem are hearing a rumbling of what's taking place. It says in verse 22, the report of all of this revival is is going back to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. The Jews in Jerusalem were totally expecting this Gentile conversion thing to be very spotty and rare, to say the least. But now they're hearing of the masses that are coming in, and they're like, what is happening over there in Antioch? It's like when there's other big moves of God. For those that were alive in 1994, you were hearing about God moving in Toronto, Canada, right by the airport at this church, where there's a move of God so powerful that individuals were coming all over the world and experiencing this this presence of God that they'd never experienced before, and they were taking it back to their congregations and seeing a ripple effect take place or you hear about Brownsville, or you hear about God moving at the International House of Prayer when I I was around there in 2008, 9, 10, around there. This outpouring where you're like, I have got to be there. I've been hearing this rumbling of what God's doing, and, and I'm so hungry to engage and see that. I'll go. I'll give the finances. I'll give the time to go and be where God's moving in that kind of way. And it's so powerful how how God chooses to move divinely and sovereignly in certain times and places. But this is what was happening in the city of Antioch. And the Jews in Jerusalem were lending their ears to hear about this crazy revival that's taking place. The problem was they didn't have a nice live stream to tune in what God was doing in Antioch. There, There was no nice quality live stream to tune into on a Sunday night. Unfortunately, nowadays we can do that. Thank the good Lord. So here's what's happening. What's the response in Jerusalem? They're like, I think we need to send someone over there. Maybe, maybe one of the leaders, can we send someone? So they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now this is our third introduction of this guy named Barnabas. And we met him first in chapter four. He, he was giving financially um, just crazy pouring out financially to bless the church and the people in the church. Shortly after that, you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira who were, who were saying that they were giving all this, this great offering to the church. But right there in the church, they dropped dead because they were lying about it. Can you imagine if that happened in the house? <laughs> Can you imagine if just like a, two people, a couple just drops dead? because they had not been telling the truth and been, been deceptive. That would have sent a little bit of holy fear of God through the congregation. <laughs> Lord, if it, if it be thy will, hear it ever, no. Please no one drop dead, just, just don't lie. Don't lie about the finances, okay? Just, just don't do it, word, word of wisdom for you. And in Acts chapter 9, Barnabas is the guy that sticks up for Paul after Paul has had this 
enormous conversion from killing and persecuting Jews. He's a high-ranking Jewish individual, Jewish leader named Saul, and he has this whole conversion experience where God knocks him off a donkey, blinds him, and then brings about this gospel message where he sees Jesus and is radically saved. So that's the story of Saul into Paul. Now, everyone was terrified of this guy, Saul, but Barnabas sticks up for him. Barnabas is an encourager. His name means son of encouragement. He's like, hey guys, I know this guy's pretty scary and you think you might be stoned like Stephen, but I, I swear to you, he's changed a lot. I re- you know, it's been a few days, but he's changed so much. And he's really smart. He's really smart. He knows a lot of Jewish history. So let's give him a chance. They're like, okay, Barnabas. Yeah, that's fine. Let him in. So that's Barnabas. And that's not actually his real name. His real name is Joseph. But because he's such an encourager, they gave him this nickname, which means son of encouragement. Isn't that cool? What if we started renaming each other? You're like, oh, your name's Jin? Let's, let's work with, um, <laughs> what's a new name for Jin? <laughs> Bobby? Bobby. Robert, what does Robert mean? What, what does it mean, the meaning of the name? Power! There it is. So there's the new nickname. From Jin to Bobby, we knight you, good sir. That's kind of like Barnabas. Bobby. All right. All right. So this is his nickname. Barnabas, son of encouragement. He is, he is a life-giving encourager. Have you ever just been around one of those people that like every time you're with them, it's like you're, you're like, I didn't know I had six cylinders. I thought I had four. And they're just charging me up with encouragement. Woo, I've got, I was tired when I came in the door and I'm full of life and encouragement. That was Barnabas. Life-giving encourager. And his nickname stuck. So that's who he is. And in verse 23, it says that he came to Antioch and saw the grace of God. The hand of God, once again, is being given credit for what's happening in this place. So Barnabas, what do, you, what do you think about all that you're observing here in Antioch? Yeah, the same grace of God is being poured out, and it's incredible. And it says that he rejoiced. He was glad, and he exhorted them. Exhorted, okay, he's got a message for them. Barnabas traveling to this new city, hasn't, hasn't mingled with them before. What kind of sermon do you think Barnabas is going to choose to preach on? We have all, all these wide-eyed little goo-goo-ga-ga, little baby believers. Everything's new, mysterious. It's the first time hearing the gospel. What's the topic that you think Barnabas is going to teach on? Here's his selection. He exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Remain faithful to the Lord. Have you ever noticed how many times this charge of being remaining faithful is throughout Scripture? Just a couple chapters later, there's, there's Paul who's urging the people, speaking them to continue in the grace of God. We see in 1 John 2 that it... um, If what you heard from the beginning continues in you, you will continue in the Son and the Father. The entire book of Hebrews, it says, don't stop now. 
the way that you live in great faith, keep it continuing. Jesus in John chapter eight, if you continue in my word, you are my true disciples. This theme of continuing and not giving up is so common all throughout scripture. And here Barnabas chooses to preach on it in his first messages to these brand new baby believers. And he's saying, you gotta keep going. They're brand new. They're like, why is he speaking? You gotta keep going. They're like, we just started. What's going on here? And here's the reason. Because following Jesus can be really difficult. I'm not here to promise you that a life following Jesus is a piece of cake. Yes, there is joy, there is peace, there's fulfillment, more than we could ask for imagine, but it's also difficult. The reason someone is preaching to, to you to not lose hope and to not give up is for the purpose that it's gonna be hard at times. I wouldn't be encouraging you guys here in Hollywood to keep writing your scripts, keep putting yourself out there, keep going to auditions, keep going to classes, keep, keep putting yourself out there, except that I know that it's going to be hard at times or hard most of the time. <laughs> My cousin's been in school to become a pediatric doctor. She's been in school for like 12 years and is in a residency right now working the night shift. She's got a son at home, she's got a husband, and she's working all night long for a 12 plus hour shift. And we have to encourage her to keep going because it's hard, but it's worth it. If you wanna get in shape, if you wanna diet, if you wanna gain muscle, whatever your body goal is, it's gonna take a lot of time, it's gonna take a lot of discipline, it's gonna a lot of be a lot of saying no. It's going to be a lot of saying yes to some pain and some times that are difficult, but it's worth it. And we encourage you to keep going. So why is Barnabas encouraging these new saints to keep going? Thank you. Scripture is also like water. I'll hold on it. Thank you, Evan. Do I sound a little parched? A little dry. All right. Keep going, even if you're parched. So why is Barnabas encouraging these new saints to keep going? Why is this a message for every believer? Because following Jesus can be really difficult. It's not easy to keep our faith alive and active for an entire lifetime. It's going to be hard. It's not easy choosing obedience day after day, giving your life for others. It takes work. We need encouragement from one another day by day. And that leads us to our response as believers. And our response is, I'm not gonna quit. Can you guys say that? I'm not gonna, one more time. I'm not going to quit. What are some times in our faith that we feel like quitting? Here's a few areas that, that I struggle with where I feel like quitting sometimes. I bet you guys can, can definitely feel that at times. I want to quit when? I want to quit sometimes when I cannot fix people who are stubborn in their own ways and opinions. Have you ever seen that video meme of that sheep that is stuck in a 
two-foot-wide ditch that goes long ways, and the sheep had jumped into this ditch, and its arms and legs, or all legs, I suppose, get stuck. <laughs> the hooves are dangling. Stuck in the ditch, and it can't get out. So this farmer or this shepherd comes and takes time and is prying this heavy, fluffy body out of the ditch, and the sheep is finally free, and it stretches its back, kicks its hooves, two seconds later, jumps back into the same ditch. <laughs> the legs are stuck once again. And the meme says, and this is youth ministry. <laughs> well, I think that's called being a Christian, and these are your friends sometimes. Can you guys feel that at times? This is often what it's like when you're pastoring people. You help get them out of an area of getting stuck, and they go about 10 feet before they're stuck in the same ways and the same mindset again. It takes some patience. And I want to quit sometimes when I can't stop people from being rebellious. That's really hard. When you want the best for people, but they're, they're determined along their rebellious ways. It's really hard to see people who are, are by their poor decisions, they're like heaping coals on their own head. It's like the pile of their own consequences. And you can totally see what's coming, but they're not listening to you and you can't stop them. That's really frustrating and it makes you want to quit. I feel deflated and like quitting when people aren't physically healed. When you are investing in another life, you're fighting along someone that's got cancer, someone that, that has Alzheimer's, someone that has ALS, and you're praying for them, you're anointing them with oil, you're, you're calling all the prayer warriors around you. You know that you've seen people healed and set free, but the individual right in front of you that you love passes away. There's a temptation to quit. I feel like quitting when the task is too overwhelming. Whether it be tackling the enormous issue of homelessness in this city, the task of combating a culture in a region that feels like so many are self-consumed, how will they ever see their need for God and turn to him? But we have to get to a place where we can't. We can't in our own strength. We cannot make this happen. And did you know that it's actually a beautiful place to be in when you admit that you cannot? I can't control this person. I can't make my family members turn to Jesus. We have to be real that following Jesus is hard at times. We're dealing with broken people in a broken world, and we are pioneering with the light of God into the darkness. There's going to be a lot of joy, a lot of joy. It's a supernatural joy from the Spirit, but there's also going to be a lot of heartache and a lot of sorrow. And I don't want to just give you a pep talk on a Sunday morning that makes you feel good till about noon on Monday, but then it fades away. I'd rather us preach the truth that, that causes the truth to set us free. And the truth is that it's hard sometimes, but we've got to keep going and don't quit. When it's hard, 
When you go through a hardship, that's the time to commit and the time to recommit. I will not quit. And that's why Barnabas exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. What's steadfast purpose? The NASB translates it with a resolute heart. The NIV translates it with all of their hearts. It literally means a heart purposed. Can we remain faithful to God by purposing our entire hearts to him? And how do we do that? Because some of you, I can feel you're like, I want to purpose my whole heart to him. How do I purpose my whole heart to my God? How do we remain faithful to him with this steadfast purpose? And I want to tell you that it's in the place where your mind, your will, and your emotions all align in a place of unity. A steadfast purpose is when, when what you feel and what you have decided align into one flow. It's not letting your temporary emotions pull you out of the sharp focus that God has for you. God, I feel so discouraged right now. I feel crazy. I don't know what's up and down. I'm overwhelmed. I'm frustrated. I just want out. But I've made a heart commitment. I've made a heart commitment. And God, with your help, I will do this thing and I will not quit. We've got to get this as believers. Now is the time to not back down or give up. We will not quit on our marriages when the season is empty and the feelings are gone and it's tough. We will not quit on our commitments of purity and holiness. We will not quit on what God's called us to in our workplace and in our ministry. We will not quit on the commitments that we have made. Even though the emotions are so powerful and they, they feel that it's reality, they're gonna make you wanna quit. But we've gotta let our emotions bow to the leadership of our spirits and let our spirits be led by the Holy Spirit. Somebody say, I will not quit. Once again, I will not quit. Okay, there's a couple other points here in this portion of scripture I wanna highlight before we're done. The markers of a church with a mission. Number one, get the message right. Number two, no quitting mindset. And number three, get the mandate right. A mandate is when an authority gives a command. It's, it's an official authorization to complete an order of business. And Jesus has given each and every one of you a mandate. He says in Matthew 28, go into all the world, Okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go out. And here's the kicker. Make disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples. It's actually very clear. Did you know that that's the mandate of every church and every person, including ours? Make disciples. That's our job. Now, in a church setting, there's, there's a lot of powerful and beautiful things, but everything that we are doing should be pointing people to becoming better disciples of Jesus. And so if we have a course that's on inner healing and, and, and dealing with childhood wounds, that's great, but that's getting you 
out of the defense and into the offense so that you can be a better disciple of Jesus Christ and make disciples. The main thing here is making disciples. That is our mission. Win people for Jesus. Bring them more deeply into relationship with him. That's what we're giving our everything for. And this was such a huge deal for the early church too. Look at what Barnabas does when he sees the need for the maturing of these disciples. Let's put it on the screen. Verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So Barnabas rocks up to Antioch. He's surveying what's taking place. He's preaching to them, don't lose heart, don't quit. And then all these people are being added to their number, new believers left and right. And he's like, okay, this is a lot. Hold on a second. I'm going to go get some help. And so he's like, pause. I'll be right back. Let me travel 100 miles to go get Paul. I need some assistance. Why do you think he left? Well, it's because he was not able to send an email with a Zoom meeting request with Paul. He actually had to go there. There were, no matter what you believe on HBO, there were no ravens with messages to, to uh, go off and, and, and inform Saul Paul that you're needed. He's, so he's like, I'm gonna go myself. I have some, some clout with this individual. I'll bring him back. So verse 25 tells us, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Hey, have you seen, have you seen Saul? Have you seen Paul? He literally had to find him, verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. What's the point of this? Why are we talking about this whole like adventure story, bring him back? It's because the quality of discipleship matters. The quality of discipleship matters, verse 25 and 26. We've got all these new believers. We're gonna give our time, our energy. We're gonna roll up our sleeves and give ourselves to seeing these people grow. It's, it's, it wasn't just about seeing more believers come to faith. That was happening. It was about investing in the growth of the saints. So here's the deal. Look up here for a second. It's not just about getting more people to raise their hands to receive Jesus. We are not here to brag about how many new converts that we have that were added to the faith. If we are responsible to create the depth of the relationships you all have with God, he is the one that will take care of the width of his ministry. Our highest priority is to see you guys grow in maturity in Jesus. We want to see you engaged and growing in God's word more than ever. We want to see you sharing your faith with your coworkers and your friends, seeing your entire life be in a place where you're sharing and talking about Jesus, how, how you have victory when you're facing your next difficulty because you can respond with the, with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. In every aspect of church life, we want you to grow as a minister of the gospel and a disciple of Jesus into the world. That is our mission. That is our mission, to make disciples. Now, specifically, I want to put on, on the screen the, the mission statement that Evergreen has for our church body. This is our church mission statement. We cultivate our obsession with Jesus through deeper roots and wider reach. We are cultivating, not just that we like Jesus and we follow him, he becomes our obsession. 
because we've discovered his love and that love is now flowing through us where it impacts all of life through deeper roots. That's discipleship, that's training, that's worship, that's all the ways that we grow and wider reach, meaning that mission of discipleship flows through each and every one of us. That's what we're about, making disciples, seeing us become obsessed with Jesus and watching the, the, the flourishing garden through your life continue outward. That's called making disciples. And we want to continuously be encouraging you guys along, getting you all, getting all up in your grill and your faces to see you moving along in knowing God, faithfully following him all of your days. So what does a committed disciple look like? I want to end with this. If you're committed, what does it look like? What can I do right now? A committed disciple is one who engages with worship and teaching. Now, this one's a little hard for you, maybe. But when you wake up in the morning as a prophetic people, I want to challenge you because you probably don't need to ask God, should I go to church this morning? Ah, good morning, God. Should I go to church this morning? He just says rest. He's my Sabbath. <laughs> Bedside chapel it is. That means that we don't have to get up and think, will I go to church this week? That was already a decision that you made when you decided to become a committed disciple of Jesus. The first things belong to God, including the first time of your week when we worship together. And I want to encourage you, Los Angeles, I love you, LA. Please find a church. I, I, I just need you to find a church because you're not going to find deep roots and a wider reach when you keep hopping around from community to community to next show to next thing to next. Find your people that you are meant to invest in where it's selfless. We can grow all week long. I want us to grow here. I want us to grow in our home groups. But our job all throughout the week is to grow because we have the teacher with us. Now find your people that you feel like, I can join this mission and I will commit to being a part of it and I will show up and I will give and I will pour out because it's not about me and being happy through. I, 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 I didn't like these stick lights in the front. It just, I, I, I didn't like it. Find your people and be a part of the solution. Engage with worship and teaching. Number two, a committed disciple is one who walks with Christ. That's what our greenhouse groups are all about. Getting into rich relationship with others. We can sharpen each other. We can stir each other, challenge each other, ask good questions. How's your personal time with God going? Have you cracked open that new Bible? Are those pages still crispy or they're getting a little worn out because you're using them? Do you have anyone that you're pouring into? That's what these small groups are all about. Supportive relationships that help you walk with Jesus. Number three, a committed disciple works for Christ. Some of you are like, ooh, I don't want to work for Christ. Ooh, work. I got to go to work tomorrow. Why is he talking about work? Because a committed disciple works for Christ. 
If you're committing yourself to follow the Lord, it's not just about attending. Now I need that water. (laughs) Attending small groups. It's not just about attending Sunday morning. How are you contributing? What are you doing? Who are you intentionally discipling? Turn to your neighbor, this will be awkward, and ask them, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of awkward because some of you are not doing very much. What are you doing? (laughs) We have to get out of a consumer culture and start becoming disciples. And disciples actually roll up their sleeves and work for the kingdom. Do you think Paul was just in his cush Sabbath life? He was like, no, I'll go and I'll be shipwrecked and I'll live over here and I'll do some tent making if necessary. Whatever it takes, I will work and give my life for the kingdom of God. And number four, quality discipleship takes time. It takes time. Isn't it true that everything that's worthwhile takes time? I'm going a little long today. It takes time to get this message into you. It's taken time. But it's worthwhile. If you're heeding my words, it's worthwhile. If you're building a house, would you rather have an expert come in and take nine months to build a beautiful home, or do you want HGTV to come when you go to work and you get home at five o'clock and a whole house is built? I'd propose to you that you want the nine months because everything at the HGTV house is probably stapled and tucked away and hidden. And when the next atmospheric river comes to California, your house is gonna be down on the ground. It takes time. It takes time to build something quality and strong. A marriage takes time and investment. You want incredible kids? You got to take time with your kids. Sit down with them. Invest with them. The, the, the same goes for your relationship with Jesus. It's going to take time. I think one of the motivators for us, when we're looking 100 years from now, 100 years from now, do you think you're going to stand before the Lord and you say, God, yes, I I met my sales goals in 2023. Aren't you proud of me, God? Aren't you proud of me? Oh, I, I influenced so many people, God. Aren't you proud of me? No, you're going to be discussing your family members that came with you? How many of your coworkers were you able to share your faith with? Did you give your time to grow in maturity to look more and more like Jesus? Billy Graham, who, gosh, what a, what a champion of the faith. He was filling stadiums around the world. And, the, and the, the time right before his death, I believe the week before his death, someone interviewed him and said, Billy, if you could change anything about your life or your ministry, do anything differently, what would you do? He didn't say like, oh, I, I wish I had done double the stadium tour. You know, oh, I wish I, had, I wish I had gone more and focused on more souls in the Northeast. He could have said a number of things and we've been like, oh yeah, that's good, that's good. But what he said, not more salvations, not more stadiums, not more books. He sat in his rocking chair and said, I wish that I had spent more time in prayer and in the word. More time with God. Quality 
Discipleship takes time. And I want to encourage you that it doesn't have to take 80 years. There, there's incredible examples of men and women who have been on the hyper-speed program for the Lord. I remember, have you guys heard of Todd White before? Raise your hand if you're Todd White. He's an incredible evangelist, teacher. He has a school of ministry now in Texas. The first time I heard him, he was only a believer for five years. And he had a wealth of wisdom and information and his own life experiences that he could share. My... my um, sister-in-law's brother-in-law. That sounds far away, but we're close. This guy, Daniel. He was the one in our family that we thought was the furthest of knowing Jesus. He was, um, didn't believe in God. He was raised Jewish. God met him in a power encounter. He heard the voice of the Lord when he was hiking one day, and there was this supernatural moment, and he heard this voice that says, what you're, what you're, talking about what you're praying about is true. Come back here in 40 days. He didn't know it. 40 days to that day was Easter Sunday. The Lord radically moved in his heart. This guy that cheated his way through high school, never read a book in his life, was reading the Bible cover to cover, just an insatiable hunger. Now this man within nine, I think it was maybe even eight years, he is now a pastor of a church in New Mexico. He is on Randy Clark's ministry team traveling to Brazil. He's, he's part of um, Global Awakening and and a man that is set on fire that the Lord has done deep work in. It doesn't have to take 80 years. God can send you on a fast track of discipleship as we follow him. And that can happen in your life. We, we all need to, to raise the standard and go higher. There's no limit. But here's the crossover. Are you ready for, for what the crossover is? This is the biggest shift there's a pastor named James McDonald, a little controversial, but I love his teaching on this. And he says, it's not just about you. That's the crossover. It's about you influencing others, winning and discipling and growing up others. That's the pinnacle of discipleship. When I get to impact and influence the lives of others, and that is the mandate. And here's the last thing, method. We gotta get the method right. I could talk forever about this, I'm not going to. There are two main things from the last section here that are emphasized. It says, for a whole year they met with the church and they taught. That's what we're doing right now. They taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Some people say, Christian isn't even mentioned in scripture. <laughs> isn't that cool? But here's the thing. Christian here was actually a put down. It was a negative. It was a harsh term. Oh, that Christian. Even through um, one of the martyrs named Sanctus, though, when he was being tortured. Why are, you, why are you following this man? He says, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. It would have been almost like this, this, this play on, like, your insults are not insulting me. I'm a Christian. Verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. They traveled 300 miles to check it out. Verse 28, one of them named Agabus stood up he for, he, and foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the, place in the days of Claudius. This was the Roman world. And, and can we be a church that is like this where we are tuning in to what God's doing? 
Do you realize that before the famine even came, they collected and sent an offering to help the people? Before the famine even came, that's a lot of faith. And they chose to gather the funds and sent it out. He said, we've got these fellow believers over here. God showed us that this famine's coming. Let's be radical and send it to them even before it comes. And not only that, this is, this is absolutely stunning because the Gentile believers were now financially blessing the Jewish believers in Judea. And this was a sign that the Gentile believers would be a blessing, not a weight or burden for the Jewish people. And something that happens in our lives when we discover that our money really isn't our money. When we discover that what I have doesn't belong to me, it belongs to God. There's a lot of freedom that comes through that. Are we living with a radical surrender? Is it, is it, is it a place where the paycheck comes in and right off the bat, you're like, here it is, God, here's my, here's my act of worship where it's just an immediate response. It's not mine, it's, it's yours. Here it is, here's my tithe. And then we give the offering on top of it. Yes, of course, let me bless these people. They're in need, I have some extra money, let me bless them. This was the radical movement of the early church. It mentions it time and time again. I, for one, get shy talking about finances sometimes because Lord knows in charismatic and church culture that there's abuses of it. But I cannot deny the word of God where it talks about the power of the worship of giving our tithes and our offerings to fuel the kingdom of God. We have to listen to the spirit and give financially. All right, look up here. We have not really lived until you live for something bigger than yourself, bigger than pleasing yourself. There's more, and there's something bigger. There's something bigger than my needs, than my, my wants, where I'm at, how I'm doing. What does Jesus say about that? He says, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And he says, I have come that they may have life more abundantly. And that's what followers of Jesus do. And together, we're we're going to, to be those that grab a hold of this greater mission, that mandate, that commission to become those kind of disciples and to make those kind of disciples. And so I'm looking forward to these weeks ahead where God is going to add fuel to the fire in your life and into our lives together and gain a fresh vision and stirring of this greater mission. Will you guys go ahead and stand with me? Would you guys just get in a, a posture of whatever it looks like to you, like a, a, an openness to the Lord? God, I'm hungry, I'm desperate to be a church body that isn't just interested in, in doing church. 
Look how many, look how many people they have. Look how many great activities they have. Great courses, great options. We want the hand of God to be here. We need your hand here. We long for your presence. You are the spirit that grows us, disciples us, moves us and shakes us and stirs us, focuses us, sharpens us. Do that in our lives, God. That we wouldn't be pulled around by our emotions or the train of thought and the opinions of others, the opinions of man, that, that we would be sharply focused on what it means to be a listening disciple of Jesus. So I thank you, God, that you're stirring that up within our body and you're showing us how to actually walk that out most successfully. And we ask for that, that supernatural hyperspeed growth in every single individual here today. If they want it, if they're hungry, they can have it. There, there's no ceiling. There's no ceiling over your life. And I thank you for, for the marking of this fresh start of the year, that there's a new commissioning to our lives, a new commissioning where we say, here am I, God, send me. Here am I, God, send me. Some of you need to, to hear that for your own city here. Here am I, send me. Oh, Los Angeles, oh, you want me to actually invest here. Here, my God, send me. Oh, you're sending me to this friendship group that I can pour out and be light in the darkness. Oh, you're sending me over here to my office space to actually say something. What are the areas, God, that you're calling us into? And let us be responsive to it. We have no other options, and we want to be a people without options. You are our option, God. And so we give ourselves once again to you. It is our joy, it's our honor. Whatever the cost, you are worth it all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.